Welcome back to Para Power Mapping. My name's Klani Gosh. We continue our comparative paranoid analysis of the history of Nazi occultism today with an investigation into a fringe New Age figure who has largely been forgotten by contemporary Americans, but who, in his time, symbolized the threat of Nazi infiltration by a treasonous fifth column in the United States, and whose speaking tours and paramilitary Nazi cult fueled pervasive fears among everyday people that Nazi agitators, agents, and saboteurs were embedded among their neighbors and co-workers, or even in the family. Hindsight is 2020, but in the decade from Hindenburg's disastrous decision to make Hitler chancellor to the United States' eventual entrance into the war, Following Pearl Harbor and the Nazi declaration of war against the U.S., fear of a fascist coup attempt, akin to the Beer Hall Putsch, Reichstag Fire, Night of the Long Knives, etc., wasn't the most illogical anxiety for Americans to have. In fact, it was a reasonable one, although the specter of the German-American Bund, Silvershirt's America First Committee, Father Coughlin's Christian Front, etc., ultimately proved incapable of rallying and congealing a far-right fascist uprising in the United States. There were serious attempts made by prominent industrialists and capitalists to foment fascism and, in one instance, to even set in motion the planning of a military coup that would lead to dictatorship. Marine Corps General Smedley Butler revealed in shocking testimony before Congress that a group of American Legion members had entreated him to lead a coup attempt on behalf of a handful of the most powerful plutocratic elite of the country. Butler made these revelations before the McCormack-Dickstein Committee, a predecessor of HUAC, a legislative body that we'll return to repeatedly in the two installments on the William Dudley Pelly story, as the House Committee on Un-American Activities figures massively. Anyways, the scheme would come to be known as the business plot, or Wall Street putsch. According to Major General Butler's testimony, he was, quote, appalled, end quote, by the plot, 
and played for time while contacting J. Edgar Hoover's FBI. The basic gist of the scheme was this. The industrialist backers wanted Butler to lead an army of American legionnaires and veterans, some half million strong, converge on Washington, D.C., demand President Roosevelt's resignation, and install Butler as dictator of the United States. Now, where in the world would these industrialists and capitalists have gotten such an outlandish and outrageous idea? Well, a couple places. First of all, they were undoubtedly inspired by the various putches that were hatched in the decade and a half following World War I and preceding the Nazi Party's ascent to power, obviously. These industrialists, numerous of whom were conducting business dealings with the Nazi leadership and were implicated as foreign capital, profiting from the Third Reich, surely looked across the Atlantic at the situation playing out in Germany and were like, well, this is something we can work with. Secondly, the business plot was also inspired by Major General Butler's appearance before the encampment of the Bonus Army in D.C., the some 40,000 strong protest of doughboy veterans who were demanding early cash redemption of their military bonuses in response to the Great Depression. Butler, immensely popular among the veterans, appeared and spoke before the group during the demonstrations before forgettable President Herbert Hoover sent in the cavalry to break up the camp. He resents the way that the Marine Corps is used to defend overseas investments such as his 1927 assignment in China to protect facilities owned by the Standard Oil Company. In some cases, Butler would say they were glorified policemen. They were Uncle Sam's policemen. He begins to publicly criticize U.S. foreign policy, and his opinions frequently get him into trouble. In 1931, when the post of Marine Corps Commandant becomes open, the expectation is that Butler will get it. But it goes to a rival with less seniority. It isn't long before General Butler retires from active duty in the U.S. Marine Corps. As a civilian, Butler earns his living as a professional speaker. No longer shackled by the rules of decorum and propriety which govern marine officers, civilian Butler is free to express himself on any subject, at any time, anywhere. And he does. Who in the hell has done all the bleeding for this country and for this law and, and this constitution anyhow but you fellas? In the summer of 1932, Butler travels to Washington to show his support for the veterans of the Bonus Army. Take it from me. This is the greatest demonstration of Americanism we've ever had. Pure Americanism. Willing to take this beating as you've taken it. Stand right steady. You keep every law. And why in the hell shouldn't you? 
This widely publicized appearance, days before General MacArthur will expel the Bonus Army from Washington, leaves an indelible impression on the public of Butler as a champion of the veterans. The business plot is a primo example of the way in which wealthy industrialists, capitalists, and power elite sought to funnel the growing public discontent caused by the worsening and life-extinguishing conditions of the Depression into fascist irrationality to strengthen their own position and reinforce their stranglehold on power, nipping the few ameliorating measures beneficial to the working class that President Roosevelt had taken in the bud and removing him from office in the process, which is laughable as it's not like Roosevelt was any real enemy of capital as president. I mean, pretty much the first thing that FDR did in the Oval Office was declare a four-day national banking holiday to prevent the withdrawal of funds and call a special session of Congress to pass the Emergency Banking Act, which had been first drafted in the tail end of the Hoover administration in a desperate attempt to prevent bank closures and right the financial system. He also signed Executive Order 6102 a month later which criminalized the possession of monetary gold to, in essence, force Americans and corporations to return to depositing their currency in banks. Quoting from Wikipedia here, on Wall Street's response to Roosevelt's inaugural measures, quote, the stock market registered its approval as well. On March 15, 1933, the first day of stock trading after the extended closure of Wall Street, the Dow Jones Industrial Average gaining 8.26 points to close at 62.10, a gain of 15.34%. As of October 2020, the gain still stands as the largest one-day percentage price increase ever. In hindsight, the nationwide bank holiday and the Emergency Banking Act of March 1933 are seen to have ended the bank runs that plagued the Great Depression." End quote. I mention this just to show that Roosevelt was honestly a little cucked by Wall Street, and his response to Butler's admissions about some of the most powerful capitalists in the country conspiring to depose him was frankly laughable and left much to be desired. To put it plainly, 
an end goal of the conspiracy was to establish a military dictatorship that would enable further consolidation of wealth and power, and which would serve to harness and redirect popular protest movements and class-based organizing into the ideological irrationality and demagogic racist paramilitarization characteristic of fascism. As mentioned, the Dick Stein Committee's investigation would amount to naught, despite Major General Butler naming various conspirators under oath before the committee all names were thrown out of the congressional record as hearsay. A contemporary article published by John L. Spivak in the communist publication New Masses at the time ran a leaked list that included the various Wall Street agitators, which we'll get to in a moment. Also, keep this in mind. In a 2007 BBC documentary on the Wall Street Putsch, it's alleged that Poppy Prescott Bush, father of future CIA director and president George H.W. Bush, served as the liaison between the business plotters and the Nazi government. Don't act surprised. So, although the allegation appears to be disputed by some American mainstream media sources, I don't doubt it for a second. It illustrates the connections between Wall Street and the Third Reich. It's enlightening reading Spivak's article in New Masses, as already, years before the House Committee on Un-American Activities existed in its most infamous form, American Marxists like John Spivak were already wise to the fact the committee was more interested in protecting American capitalism from union organizing and Marxism than it was in rooting out fascist encroachments on democratic institutions. This will be borne out later when we examine William Dudley Pelley's run-ins with HUAC and the way in which he would not only bury the hatchet, but openly applaud their efforts against communism. A literal Nazi agent in the United States saw HUAC as his ally. He offered to abolish the silver shirts as long as HUAC continued to defend quote-unquote Americanism against the threat of communism. Don't worry, we'll return and cover it in more detail a little later, but I feel like 
a bit of foreshadowing isn't a bad idea, so that the business plot and Dick Stein Committee's connections to William Dudley Pelly and the Silver Shirts are apparent. I appeared before the Congressional Committee, the highest representation of the American people under subpoena to tell what I knew of activities, which I believe might lead to an attempt to set up a fascist dictatorship. The plan as outlined to me was to form an organization of veterans, to use as a bluff or as a club at least, to intimidate the government and break down our democratic institutions. The upshot of the whole thing was that I was supposed to lead an organization of 500,000 men, which would be able to take over the functions of government. I talked with an investigator for this committee who came to me with a subpoena on Sunday, November 18th. He told me they had unearthed evidence linking my name with several such veteran organizations. As it then seemed to me to be getting serious, I felt it was my duty to tell all I knew of such activities to this committee. My main interest in all this is to preserve our democratic institutions. I want to retain the right to vote, the right to speak freely, and the right to write. If we maintain these basic principles, our democracy is safe. No dictatorship can exist with suffrage, freedom of speech, and press. Returning to new masses, let's explore some of the conspirators that Spivak alleges were involved. This article is incredibly interesting. He names Kuhn, Loeb, and Co., and the Warburgs, specifically, who he contends exerted significant control over the American Jewish Committee, which, on the face of it, was supposed to combat anti-Semitism. But, at least in relation to the Butler subpoena and investigation into the business plot, Spivak contends the AJC pushed the Dickstein Committee to avoid naming Warburgs and others involved. The fact he name-drops Kuhn, Loeb, and Co. is instructive, too. As you might remember, I mentioned the firm's involvement in various attempts to get financing for the Kaiser during World War I, in one of our previous Crowley and Espionage investigations. Specifically, I think that episode was Rosicrucian Road Trip San Jose, Part 1. Another one of the very first names out Spivak's pen is J.P. Morgan and Company, of course. Let's read a passage where Spivak lists the 13 major accusations he's making, as it serves as a useful condensation of his series of articles. Quote, Instead of actually seeking evidence of fascist organizations and who are behind them, the Congressional Committee ignored fascism until its menace here was thrust upon them, and then suppressed vital evidence regarding it. The reason 
Wall Street interests, such as Morgan's, were involved, which are tied up with the Warburg interests, which dominate the American Jewish Committee without the knowledge of the overwhelming majority of its membership. In the course of these articles, I shall show, one, that the Dickstein Committee refuses to explain why it suppressed evidence of fascist organizations and of fascist movements. Two, that the Dickstein Committee knew of the offer made to General Smedley Butler to organize a fascist army of 500,000 men, but ignored this information until it was forced to call Butler. 3. That having called him, the committee issued a garbled statement of what he said, and not until the national furor died down did it issue even parts of his testimony. 4. That General Butler named a fascist organization in which some leaders of the American Jewish Committee are active, and that this testimony was suppressed. 5. That a Nazi agent worked in Warburg's Bank of Manhattan, and that Felix Warburg was never called upon to explain how he got there. 6. That the Warburg financial interests have heavy investments in Nazi Germany. The American Jewish Committee has steadfastly opposed the boycott of German goods. 7. That the most powerful fascist organizations are controlled by financiers whose interests are controlled by J.P. Morgan's interests. 8. That the Warburg financial interests are tied up with Morgan and consequently work with Morgan men. 9. That Grayson M. P. Murphy involved in the plot to organize a fascist army is a Morgan man and one of those who originally financed the starting of the American Legion for, quote, big business, end quote, and who supports disseminators of anti-Semitic propaganda. And that, knowing all this, the Dickstein Committee never called Murphy to explain his activities. 10. That a Hearst man tied up with Morgan interests captured control of the American Legion, which Butler was asked to lead as a fascist army. And that this man, summoned to appear before the Dickstein Committee, was never questioned after he had had a, I think this word is secret, conference with President Roosevelt. 11. That the American Liberty League 
was named by Butler and this fact suppressed by the Dickstein Committee. The League is controlled by Morgan-Dupont interests, as well as having Warburg representation on it. 12. That the Remington Arms Company, controlled by Morgan-Dupont, was named as the body which would supply arms and equipment to the fascist army, and that this testimony was suppressed by the Congressional Committee. 13. Oh, actually, I guess there are 14 accusations here, as outlined. 13. That Max Warburg, brother of Felix, and directors of the Steel Trust of Germany, which originally financed Hitler, are in the United States trying to get credits for Hitler's government in copper purchases. 14. That Hearst copper interests were among those being considered at the time Hearst opened his anti-red campaign. Big end quote. So, to survey the major banker and industrialist families that have been mentioned in connection to the business plot so far, we've got Prescott Bush, the Morgans, Max and Felix Warburg, and the DuPonts. Spivak goes on to allege that before the attempt to recruit Butler for their scheme, he had been paid $16,000 to deliver an address supporting the gold standard at the American Legion Conference by one Gerald C. McGuire, the same man who later returned with the offer of paying Major General Butler $3 million to lead said coup d'etat, and with promises of a further $300 million that could be made available to him. This McGuire character is your quintessential class trader, but the bad kind. Evidently, he was a stockbroker who, prior to the scheming, was only making $100 a week, which, granted, at the time was actually significant, but still. Once he took the role of organizer and began colluding with folks like General Butler on the wealthy backers' behalf, huge sums of money began to pass through his hands. Another thing that I find interesting about Spivak's piece is that he seems to imply that the American Legion itself had been financed with a future coup in mind, which is just so nefarious. Like, the entire reason the Veterans Organization was formed was that it could fly under the radar 
as a concealed paramilitary, essentially, one that could be mobilized by its wealthy benefactors if the need or opportunity to do so arose. Another thing, it seems a little difficult to tell whether Butler's role as whistleblower on the whole affair stemmed out of his genuine concern for quote-unquote democracy, or whether he kinda lost his nerve, basically. As the Spivak piece points out, Butler had already been paid $16,000 by the same folks to deliver this speech endorsing the gold standard, so he does seem like a bit of a mercenary. I'm just wondering aloud here, not saying I know for sure one way or the other. Remember how I mentioned Executive Order 6102, which abolished the gold standard and illegalized the hoarding of gold? So, as you can see, there's a direct connection between Roosevelt's executive order and the business plot. Also, what does this say about the motivations behind libertarian and conservative rhetoric around the gold standard and who it benefits? At this moment in history, the United States was in the process of becoming the preeminent economic and imperial power in the world. The UK was failing and flagging behind because of the conditions caused by rampant wartime expenditures which led to inflation which precipitated the Depression and caused the Brits to come off the gold standard in 1931 as well, a few years before the U.S. I find it telling the gold standard was apparently preferable for the powerful financiers and industrialists, and that it appears to have been a motivation behind the plot. On the simplest level, seems to me like pegging currency to gold would enable further accumulation of wealth by the plutocratic elite due to its scarcity and the fact that, historically, said families were the ones that already had huge stores of the stuff. It would double as an insurance policy for them, basically. Anyways, to finish with the abortive Wall Street putsch, here's something interesting. McGuire, the middle-class stockbroker who was tasked with acting as go-between between Butler and the conspirators, would end up dead like a year later at the young age of 36. That's not suspicious at all. Oh, also, I forgot to mention this before, but Butler, although a, quote, avowed Republican, end quote, actually supported Roosevelt in the 1932 election, in part because of the Hoover admin's reaction 
to the bonus army protests. Whether you want to interpret this as proof of a principled nature that foreshadowed his role in thwarting the plot, or whether you tend towards the messier analysis where he was perhaps a voluntary participant in said plot at first, but backed out and came clean out of fear of the potential consequences. I'll leave that up to you. It is interesting, though. In 1933, evidently Butler had begun railing on capitalists and bankers, and was even admonishing himself for having been a, quote, racketeer for capitalism, end quote, in the past. So maybe his conscience did play a part. Alternatively, the more noided interpretation would be that such rhetoric was savvy posturing, aimed at appealing to the prevalent anti-capitalist sentiment at the heights of the Great Depression, and that this language was being wielded to convince the masses of his legitimacy as an outsider and reformer in a way not dissimilar to how Donald Trump would later promise to drain the swamp, for example. It could be that Butler had always been an ally of the capitalists and merely masqueraded as a reforming voice to co-opt working-class movements in preparation for the dictatorial turn, and that his later whistleblowing to the Dickstein Committee was him simply trying to save his own skin. During the last three months of traveling, I've gained the impression that Mr. Roosevelt's popularity is on the wane, but that it is not slipping fast enough to, of itself, destroy his chances for re-election in 1936. The great mass of open-minded Americans who are not blindly bound by party allegiances and whose votes really decide elections, again, have come to the conclusion that the Democratic Party cannot run this country. But they do not seem to have any more confidence in the old-line Republican politicians. Mr. Roosevelt will be re-elected unless he makes some false step involves us in a foreign war which is surely coming. Just remember, too, that this administration has control of the vote-getting machinery and has control of $5 billion to spend as it sees fit. And as present-day politics go, you could elect an Eskimo with $5 billion. Another angle of this whole thing that has a tangential bearing on the William Dudley Pelly story is the fact that McGuire appears to have been put up to the whole scheme by his boss, Grayson M.P. Murphy, who owned the stock brokerage GMP Murphy and Company that employed McGuire, and Grayson was also a VP of Guarantee Trust Company and served as a director on the boards of numerous companies, including 
Anaconda Copper Mining Company, Guarantee Trust, New York Trust, Bethlehem Steel, Goodyear Tire and Rubber, New York Railways, Fifth Avenue Coach Company, and Chicago Motor Coach Company. But Grayson Murphy connects to the Pelly story via the fact that he was the commissioner of the American Red Cross in Europe during World War I. As we will see, Pelly, through his experiences as a spy and missionary in Japan and Siberia during World War I, basically <laughs> developed a fetish for Red Cross nurses that he continued to nurse throughout the, throughout the remainder of his life. He literally left his first wife to pursue a woman who had served as a Red Cross nurse. But that's not all. He also wrote them in as love interests in various novels and screenplays. Anyways, Grayson Murphy was a fascist who had also served as a volunteer during the Spanish-American War. Later, he ranked up to lieutenant in charge of ops during the Philippine-American War, following his graduation from the military academy. And once again, it all comes back to Massachusetts and the susness of New England, as powerful New England families numbered among the conspirators, the DuPonts of Delaware, for example, and McGuire himself was a member of the Connecticut branch of the American Legion. In fact, Butler first met with McGuire and another American legionnaire, Bill Doyle, who was head of the Massachusetts American Legion, and they asked him to run for national commander. This was on July 1st of 1933. A few days later, they returned and gave him the speech that he was to deliver that expressed support for the gold standard. I'm now unsure whether Butler actually gave the remarks endorsing the gold standard or not, which is crucial to our analysis of his motivations, so just be aware of that. I need to go back and confirm it. Still, I do find it a little suspicious the extended period that Butler's connections and relationships with the conspirators appears to have carried on for. He later revealed numerous meetings over the span of a whole year or more, and he also told of receiving correspondence from McGuire, who had traveled to Europe to, in essence, study fascist veteran paramilitaries 
in preparation for their efforts. That's another point of reference for our comparative analysis. The Free Corps of Germany likely served as another touchpoint for these motherfuckers. But perhaps I'm being uncharitable to Butler, as it does appear that he gave the details of the plot to his former assistant, Paul Comley French, then working as a journalist, who in turn exposed the plot in the Philadelphia Record and New York Post in November of 1934 possibly in part to force the Dickstein Committee into taking action. He was also reported as having called the American Legion like, quote, nothing more than a strike-breaking unit, end quote, or something to that effect, which, to be fair, is on point. Let's talk about another of the conspirators to really highlight New England money's prominent role in this thing. One last meeting that Butler had before the plot unraveled was with Robert Sterling Clark, an heir to the Singer Sewing Machine fortune who had similarly served in the Philippines, like Murphy and Butler. Clark was a second lieutenant. Clark was also a Yale grad, plating yet another Connecticut connection. He spent his final days in Massachusetts. Guess who Clark served under? In China, the decorated General Smedley Butler, of course, who was a first lieutenant at the time. So chalk that up as evidence of potential complicity. On the other hand, in the In Defense of Smedley Butler column, there are a couple other things I gotta mention. Shortly after the Dickstein Committee subpoenaed Smedley, he became a strident anti-war voice, going so far as declaring, quote, war is a racket, end quote. He also evidently voted for Norman Thomas of the Socialist Party for president in 1936. He denounced his own bloody involvement in American imperialism during the Banana Wars and many other campaigns, bringing us dangerously close to banana discourse. And this won't be the only time this episode, but not today. Smedley may also have warned off James E. Van Zandt of the VFW, advising him to avoid getting 
pulled into the wealthy financiers and industrialists scheme. In a 1935 issue of the socialist mag, Common Sense, Smedley had the following to say. Let's see if I can do the voice. Quote, I spent 33 years and four months in active military service, and during that period I spent most of my time as a high-class muscle man for big business, for Wall Street and the bankers. In short, I was a racketeer, a gangster for capitalism. I helped make Mexico and especially Tampico safe for American oil interests in 1914. I helped make Haiti and Cuba a decent place for the National City Bank boys to collect revenues in. I helped in the raping of half a dozen Central American republics for the benefit of Wall Street. I helped purify Nicaragua for the International Banking House of Brown Brothers in 1902 to 1912. <laughs> oh, God damn it. I feel like I'm slipping into angry David Lynch a little bit. I brought light to the Dominican Republic for the American sugar interests in 1916. I helped make Honduras... <laughs> I helped make Honduras write for the American Fruit Companies in 1903. In China, in 1927, I helped see to it that Standard Oil went on its way unmolested. Looking back on it, I might have given Al Capone a few hints. The best he could do was to operate his racket in three districts. I operated on three continents. End quote. Now, granted, I haven't read the entirety of this Smedley-Butler article that he published in Common Sense at that time, but you tell me, do those words sound like the truly remorseful words of a newly converted anti-war activist and socialist? Or do they still sound a little boastful? It's impossible to know whether he had the quote-unquote democracy's best interests at heart, but I still wonder whether his transformation into an anti-war crusader against the corruption and injustice of the military-industrial complex was truly genuine, or a part of an elaborate role and persona he'd begun assuming that dated back to his hand selection by Alfred P. Sloan, J.P. Morgan Jr., and I. DuPont, as the ideal candidate for military dictator of the United States. You would think that they wouldn't approach him without confidence that he was ideologically on their team and that he would also 
except IDK. I mean, we're talking literal treason here. At the same time, military careerists are weirdos, though, and sometimes a confusing sense of duty can override their personal political ideologies, so maybe his head and heart did win out. Once he'd been offered the opportunity to become fascist dictator of the United States. I think you could make a more noited argument that Smedley Butler was a part of an effort to infiltrate, co-opt, and funnel off and redirect left political movements into a military dictatorship through the weaponization of anti-war and social democratic rhetoric. I think the scariest interpretation would be that Butler's whole transformation into anti-war activist actually predated the Dickstein investigation into the business plot. That it was, in fact, a part of the same or an even larger plot to maintain capitalist control. We're talking about a guy who had engaged in espionage in the past, at one point sneaking into Mexico in the disguise of a railway conductor or official while serving the interests of a company like Standard Oil. Similarly, we're talking about a guy who put Philadelphia on lockdown for a hot minute, raiding the speakeasies of the rich and poor alike and entreating the police officers then under his jurisdiction to literally start murdering and killing criminals and bandits. So, is it really that hard to believe? Uh, and in terms of why they were recruiting uh, Butler, his importance uh, in the uh, early uh, and, and uh, mid-20th century as a military hero, could you talk about that as well? Yeah, so Butler was, you know, he was the zealot. He was like, he's like the Forrest Gump of American imperialism in the early 20th century. Um, he joined the Marines in 1898. Uh, he lied about his age. He was 16 years old. Um, and he, he joined to, to fight in, you know, the Spanish-American War, the Spanish-Cuban-American War um, against uh, Spanish imperialism in Cuba. But from there, he rides a wave of imperial war and he's everywhere. He's in the Philippines. He invades China twice. Uh, he helps seize the land for the Panama Canal. He overthrows governments in Nicaragua, in Haiti. Uh, he invades the Dominican Republic, et cetera. Uh, he's also uh, a general during World War I. Um, and so he had this very, very long uh, and, and uh, renowned resume uh, in the Marine Corps. He was twice the recipient of the Medal of Honor um, that made him a big star in America 
Uh, and he was also he had a reputation as being sort of a, a Marines general, like he was somebody who who, you know, had the, the deep and abiding respect of his enlisted men. Um, and because of that resume of having overthrown a lot of democracies overseas and also having, you know, the the the, the loyalty of so many members of the Marine Corps, that for the best, the best as we can tell is why. Uh, Jerry Maguire and and his and probably his boss uh, Grayson Murphy uh, went to to Butler to to lead uh, their putsch. But just on this plot, um, in 1934, what did General Motors and J.P. Morgan have to do with this? What was the Liberty League, and how far did this go? So the reason why we know about the Liberty League's involvement is because Jerry Maguire who is the, the, the representative of this Wall Street firm, tells Butler at, at, a, at this meeting in, in 1934 that very soon a organization is going to emerge to back the putsch. And he describes them as being sort of the villagers in the opera, that they would sort of be operating behind the scenes. And a couple of weeks later, on the front page of The New York Times, this new organization is announced, the Liberty League, and it is started by the DuPonts, uh, Alfred P. Sloan, all of the people that you just mentioned, and is also directly connected to uh, McGuire, the guy who's recruiting Butler, because his boss, uh, Grayson M. P. Murphy, who is really, I think, the, the linchpin of this thing, is this is the treasurer of the Liberty League. And what the Liberty League was was it was basically a consortium of extremely wealthy capitalists, industrialists. Uh, who hated Franklin Roosevelt. They also had uh, the involvement of two former Democratic presidential candidates, Al Smith and, and John W. Davis, who were anti-New Deal Democrats. And basically, you know, their, their public-facing goal, and they were very open about this, was to dismantle the New Deal, um, which FDR was trying to use to, to save, you know, Americans, to, to put millions of Americans back to work and, and save Americans from the Depression. What we don't know is how far the maybe the more senior members of the Liberty League, like the DuPonts, had gotten in the planning. And the reason why we don't know is because the congressional committee that Butler testifies in front of, uh, which is headed by John W. McCormack, who goes on to become the longtime Speaker of the House, uh, Samuel Dickstein, who was who a, a Democrat of, of uh, New York. They, they cut their investigation short. The only people who testify are Butler, a newspaper a reporter who Butler's enlisted in sort of an independent investigation, Jerry Maguire, and the lawyer for uh, one of the maybe lower level uh, uh, industrialists who, who's behind this, the heir to the so, uh, Singer sewing machine fortune. And so absent that, you know, more detailed investigation, we just don't know, you know, the extent. Oh, and... One other thing, not to make too much of this, but I am noticing that his military career lasted for exactly 33 years. Speaking of which, let's highlight one other of the named conspirators. Alfred P. Sloan was also in on the plot. I said speaking of which because... General Motors slash Alfred P. Sloan acquired 80% of German automaker Opel for 
quote, $33.3 million, end quote, in 1929. There's that Masonic number again. Sloan was an MIT grad from New Haven and a member of Delta Upsilon, who rose to chairman of General Motors via his roller-bearing company. Looking at Delta Upsilon's early history, I'm getting quasi-anti-Masonic front for Freemasonry vibes. Formed at Williams College at the height of anti-Masonry as a quote-unquote non-secret frat, its founding documents were lost in a mysterious fire, classic Masonic pastime. Not trying to sully the good name of this Greek society. <laughs> no, that is what I'm trying to do. Uh, but by the time future auto magnate, enabler of the Nazi Blitzkrieg, and namesake of MIT's School of Management, Alfred P. Sloan numbered among the frat brethren, they'd long walked back the anti-secret posturing. Alfred P. Sloan was evidently one of the primary organizers of the business plot with DuPont, Morgan, Singer, McGuire, etc. A few last pieces of quick housekeeping before we move from the business plot on to William Dudley Pelly. Journalist Jonathan Katz claims that the connection that has been made between Prescott Bush and the Wall Street Putsch um, is actually due to clerical error caused by documents from two different Dickstein Committee investigations, the second into Brown Brothers Harriman and their dealings with the Nazi party. Anyways, Katz claims that the documents have been kept in uh, the same folder, and uh, because of it, Prescott Bush was incorrectly attributed as a business plotter. I don't know that I totally buy this. Perhaps there was some wise national archivist that had uh, followed the trail and uh, correctly connected Prescott Bush to the business plotters. I mean, to me, it makes a whole world of sense. And knowing the factuality of his dealings with literal Nazis, it's not hard to believe that he may have been intended to be a uh, liaison between this future United States military dictatorship and Nazi Germany. One other thing that's interesting. Representative Dickstein may have been 
it appears, a paid Soviet agent, uh, according to the book The Haunted Wood, which I haven't read, um, written by Alan Weinstein, and uh, also according to another author or journalist, Peter Duffy. I'm just referring to Wikipedia here. Weinstein claimed that documents discovered in the 1990s in Moscow uh, archives showed Dick Stein was paid $1,250 a month from early 1937 to early 1940 by the NKVD, equivalent to uh, $25,400 in 2022. So the NKVD being the Soviet spy agency, which hoped to get secret congressional information on anti-communist and pro-fascist forces, as well as supporters of Leon Trotsky. According to Weinstein, whether Dick Stein provided useful intelligence is not certain. When he left the committee, the Soviets dropped him from the payroll. Dick Stein also unsuccessfully attempted to expedite the deportation of Soviet defector uh, Walter Kravitsky, while the Dyes Committee kept him in the country. The Boston Globe also claimed, quote, Dick Stein ran a lucrative trade in illegal visas for Soviet operatives before brashly offering to spy for the NKVD, the KGB's precursor, in return for cash, end quote. Although it's interesting, it doesn't appear that Dick Stein was necessarily super effective, nor was he a true communist. Instead, um, it seems that he was motivated primarily by cash. Evidently, his Soviet handlers even nicknamed him Crook because of this. Well, there's still plenty more that I'd like to learn about this illustrative abortive planned coup from early 20th century American history, and there are a couple books I've downloaded that may necessitate further coverage once I've been able to read more, so we may yet update our analysis in subsequent parts. But that's a quick rundown of some of the various capitalist elite involved in the Wall Street putsch and their motivations, as well as a non-thorough attempt to parse General Smedley Butler's role in the whole thing, whether principled whistleblower, opportunist, or nascent fascist dictator caught red-handed in the planning of a Nazi-inspired, capitalist-backed, abortive coup attempt. This example sets the stage nicely 
for us to explore Peli and the Silver Legion, and not just because of the synchronicity between the American Legion and Silver Legion, which, in fact, is now making me get really noited and wonder whether the exact same folks were underwriting both operations. Goddamn, we might return to the business plot a little later on, but we gotta keep moving. And now, ladies and gentlemen, our own version of Cole Porter's Begin the Begin. As my hope for the remainder of this episode is to get through Pelly's early life, involvement in World War I-era espionage, his journalism, short story writing, and Hollywood career, and the extremely sus near-death experience that triggered his far rightward and anti-Semitic turn, leaving the formation of the Silver Shirts, his run-in with HUAC, imprisonment, soulcraft, and UFO writings for part two. That's the goal, but it's not binding. Depending on the length, I may have to break it up slightly differently. William Dudley Pelly and his Silver Shirt Legionnaires serve as an instructive nexus of the dynamic between American racism, anti-Semitism, nationalism, occultism, and Hitler and the NSDAP's ascent in Germany. In this segment, we'll also likely survey some of the far too common business dealings between American industrialists and the Third Reich in the decade preceding the war 
and into it. Through Pelly, you can connect Charles Lindbergh, Henry Ford, the German-American Bund, John Birch Society, Posse Comitatus, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that correctly, um, I'll have to look that up, Order of 76, quote-unquote, I am activity, apocalyptic millenarianism, theosophy, prepper shit, soulcraft, UFO cults, House Committee on Un-American Activities, Elements of Hollywood, Genuine Nazi Assets and Agents, Circa World War II, Near-Death Experiences, Pyramidism, and Extremely Sus, quote, Clairaudient, and quote, Voices, Instructing Pelly's Anti-Semitic Turn. Oh, and then... You have the fact that the Pellies are descended from an English noble family in the Southampton area, knighted circa Elizabeth's reign as well. Let's get into it. But first, if you enjoy the show, I have a favor to ask. Give a little back by either taking the time to share the pod or linking my research on social media. And if you can afford it, please subscribe to the Patreon, where you'll gain access to the complete para-power mapping catalog of number one noided hits. The more folks that take the para-power mapping plunge, the more listeners we get in here, and the more folks subscribe to the Patreon, the more time I will be able to invest in researching and producing these episodes, ensuring the longevity of the show and enabling me to crank up the rate of production. By the way, we now have a Discord and free trials are still activated for a limited time, so there's no better time to jump inside the Boston Brahmin Watch office. And with that pitch out of the way, let's dive in. William Dudley Pelly was born to an itinerant Methodist minister in Lynn, Massachusetts, bringing our investigations full circle once again, foreshadowing his future Anglo-Israelism and waspy racism, Pelly inherited a deep pride in his knighted British ancestry from his father, William G.A. Pelly would make much of the hard scrabbleness of his childhood in his later writings, and while there's maybe a modicum of truth to it, it seems to me that the Pellies were well-ensconced middle-class or petite bourgeois for the most part. If I remember correctly, Pelly's great-grandfather brought the family down from Newfoundland to Massachusetts 
where he hoped to maximize on a model of specially treated leather boots intended for fishermen that he'd devised. But when the Pellies got to Mass, Grandpa discovered that the market had already been cornered by bootmakers of the rubber variety to his dismay. Failed business schemes seem to have loomed large in the Pelly family history, and a desire to come good economically appears to have been a major motivator of Pelly's. So, like mentioned, when Pelly was born in 1890, his dad was the pastor of a tiny parochial parish. But with the Depression of 1893, William G.A. would trade his evangelizing and flock herding in for a dry goods store in another small Massachusetts town. Another failed enterprise. In Pelly's childhood, they moved around a lot, from Lynn to New Templeton to Springfield to Gardiner, and then finally to Fulton, New York, in Pelly's teens. Over that span of years, William G.A. worked as a pastor, opened the aforementioned dry goods store, an auction house, became a cobbler, and then was hired to work in advertising with the little village paper in Gardner. This short-lived stopover in journalism in his father's career would be hugely consequential in Pelly's life, as his time watching his dad set type and work in the printing room enchanted Pelly and gave birth to the newspaper man aspirations that would structure his early career. As appears to often be the case with these fascists, the entrepreneurial spirit was strong with young Pelly. While still in kid britches, Pelly took a loan from his dad, which he then used to purchase his own press, which he ran out of a shed in the backyard. Bright-eyed and only twelve years old, Pelly set about becoming the newspaper mogul of his elementary school, publishing the Hubbard-inspired Junior Star. As we'll see, upon his maturation, Pelly's politics would become a frightening far cry of old Luddite and utopian socialist Albert Hubbard. An especially curious connection, one that ties back in with our recent examination of H. Spencer Lewis and the ancient mystical order Rosicrucis, is the fact that one of Pelly's biggest influences as a young 
aspiring mystic and journalist was Albert Hubbard, founder of the Roycroft community in Aurora, New York, and utopian socialist disseminator of a New Thought-esque magazine. It's interesting to note the impact that Hubbard and his publications had on both Lewis and Pelly. It's also making me wonder whether we'll end up with similar assertions to those that we've made about H. Spencer Lewis and Blavatsky in the previous installment. Wink, wink. I don't want to get ahead of myself, but whether under the direction of German agents or not, it's indisputable that Pelly served as an agent of Nazi interests in the United States during World War II. I think there's a chance we'll gain additional insights by juxtaposing Pelly with my hypothesis that H. Spencer Lewis was a German agent or asset, which we evinced in previous episodes, coupled with the fact that Albert Hubbard, who died on the Lusitania, was a non-interventionist and personally volunteered to go and speak to the Kaiser during World War I. All right, here's a telling anecdote. Pelly's dad tried to warn him off, inviting controversy after repeated complaints by Pelly's teacher over how he was being portrayed. But little Willie didn't listen. Only learning his lesson, once he insulted a class and neighborhood bully's nose, in the black and white, at which point Pelly got his lip split. This would shut Pelly up for a time. Man, if only more people had kicked the shit out of the obnoxious little autodidact. By the way, we're pulling from numerous sources today, as always, but that specific story comes from Scott Beekman's William Dudley Pelly, A Life in Right-Wing Extremism and the Occult, which is possibly the only academic biographical work on Pelly covering the totality of his life, occult career, and Nazi organizing. Also, I'm wondering whether this early nose jibe that resulted in a lip jab, might have had anti-Semitic undertones. Beekman doesn't say, but I wouldn't be surprised. Following getting his shit rocked, Pelly folded the junior star for a time, but his adolescent newspaper publishing period wasn't yet over. Once the family relocated to Springfield and during Pelly's single year at Springfield Technical High, he would get his hand-cranked printer purring again. 
this time publishing a paper called The Black Crow. This second, Pelly-owned publication would be cut short by the family's relocation to Fulton, New York, which also ended Pelly's matriculation, something he'd never get over. Also, notice the archetypal origin story of having academic or career pretensions foiled, which seems to be a commonality among these fash types. Another note about this period, beyond Pelly's British gentry heritage and the Pelly's apparent prosperity in Newfoundland, the family's time in Fulton contradicts William Dudley's narratives of, like, backwater poverty growing up, as his dad appears to have done well financially at the Fulton Toilet Paper Company, and Willie himself would ascend the corporate ladder as not but a teenager. Also, check out this outrageous, snake-oily claim they used when advertising one of their TP brands called the Pathfinder. They claimed it, quote, adds years <laughs> to your life. How something that you wipe your ass with could add years to your life? Uh, please enlighten me. Oh, I think I get it. Was it that old-timey toilet paper uh, tore so easily or, like, clumped or something that uh, wiping your ass was just um, utter drudgery and toil of soiled toilet paper? <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm such a juvenile. Anyways, William Dudley Pelly became treasurer and superintendent of the firm. I think possibly still in just his teenage years. During Pelly's TP years, he once again waded into the boutique magazine market, this time with the clarion call of the philosopher the publication he hoped would prove his maturation and bring him real renown. Terrible name. At this point in Pelly's career, we still find him espousing clean living, child labor, reformism, new thought-esque shit, etc. In short, he seems to have still been closer to Hubbard ideologically, than his later deformed demagoguery would become. He stand the Salvation Army, criticized mainstream denominations for abandoning the poor, and declared his personal belief system the, <laughs> oh man, this is really bad too, quote, religion of laughter, end quote. Dude, this is really strange. 
As a young man, according to Beekman, Pelly was into Bellamy and the social gospel movement, which defended labor rights and was anti-laissez-faire. How did his fascist and anti-Semitic turn come about? The collapse of these earlier ideals caused by his upward mobility and the conservative regression of growing older? It seems like the anti-Semitism was already present, albeit maybe in a nascent form, but the rest of his politics seem more of that progressive social reformer at that young age. Huh. Yeah, it seems like Pelly used the philosopher to advocate for a Christian socialist theocracy, in essence, inspired by Bellamy and dreaming of the abolishment of poverty. But in keeping with other fascists, you might say that the eclecticism of Pelly's thought was characteristic. Even though Pelly was making pronouncements about child-rearing reform and defending laborers, he also believed that Christ would be a dictator at the time of his second coming. So there's a germ of his later fascism already present there. Let's continue on and try to parse the threads. Speaking of the difficulty of reconciling Pelly's earlier politics with his later adoption of full-fledged Nazism, I had another thought. His youth in Massachusetts was during maybe the zenith of Union militancy and organizing, and the swelling tide of organized labor probably rubbed off on him, his youthful idealism concealing his true class affiliations and mercenary commitment to individual economic achievement, not to mention his outright racism. From 1890 to 1920, Massachusetts was a hotbed of labor organizing. In Boston, workers had been meeting and protesting in Faneuil Hall and elsewhere in the struggle for an eight-hour workday for decades. And when Pelly was 22, there was the legendary Bread and Roses strike at the Lawrence Textile Mills, too, of course. I'm certain that Pelly would have read newspaper articles about the direct action and labor organizing rippling through the state during his formative years, 
And this exposure to the plight of working people probably informed some of his youthful reform agendas. Those are just two examples from the history of labor in Massachusetts that were coincident with Pelley's childhood, but I promise you there was a ton of other actions, protests, and even battles with strikebreakers happening during that period he would have certainly heard or read about. Call it a cautionary tale about the way in which ambition renders principles malleable and future Nazis are sometimes hiding in plain sight. Sometime in the late 1900s or early 1910s, Pelly married his first wife. Pelly still harbored newspaper man uh, aspirations, and he was also nursing his infant short story career at this point. He first began to work as a reporter at the Bennington Evening Banner, but as his story output began to accelerate and magazines with national subscriptions came calling, Pelly soon quit the paper to focus on writing full-time. He devoured volumes of O. Henry. He would twice receive the short story award named after the writer, but his style was most influenced by the Lake Wobegon-esque morality fictions of William Allen White, whose In Our Town was a bestseller in 1906, and which Pelly's old editor at the Banner had magnanimously assigned to him. Pelly's adoption of a White-esque style would both make and break his writing career. After a spate of success in the teens and twenties, his upright Protestant sentimentalism would become passé, which would force Pelly to double down on trying his luck in Hollywood, an emergent market with cultural trends lagging behind magazines and journals. But back in 1914, Pelly began to publish in the Saturday Evening Post and Adventure magazine. For the first few years of the Great War, Pelly was filling his stable with fables and local color stories, publishing in American Magazine, Pictorial Review, and Red Book, among others. With the various commission fees from accepted pieces and earnings he'd saved from working as foreman and reporter at the Bennington Evening Banner, Pelly purchased his own paper in 1918, the St. Johnsbury Caledonian, 
in Vermont. This actually was Pelley's third stint as editor and or publisher of a local rag. And that's not counting the childhood ones. Half a decade before this, Pelly had worked as the night editor for the Western Massachusetts edition of the Boston Globe, a post he soon traded in when an opportunity arose for him to open his own paper in Chicopee, Massachusetts. Basically, the mayor of the little town, a man named John Rivers, was running his own little Tammany Hall machine by the sound of it, and the local papers were opposed to his dynasty. Rivers offered to support Pelly in starting his own paper in Chicopee that would act as the de facto organ of the mayor under the stipulations that when Rivers said jump, Pelly said how high. According to Beekman, Pelly, tired of the political scene in Chicopee quickly, which led to him taking the job in Bennington and relocating his family initially. Another example of the mercenary nature of Pelly. So, once Pelly bought the Caledonian, he switched it from a morning to evening daily, which seems to have played a large part in it becoming a successful money maker. All those dairy farmers didn't have time to read the paper in the mornings while they were busy yanking teats. Also, Teat reminds me of the William Pynchon EP. Pelly lived in William Pynchon's turf. He and his fam were in Springfield for at least a couple years while he worked for the Globe. Anyways, I brought up the earlier story about Pelly's brief spell in Chicopee because he had to assuage the fears of the St. Johnsbury townsfolk that he wasn't secretly in the pocket of any local politicians once he'd purchased the paper. Which I gotta say, I think that this mercenary aspect of Pelly's career says a lot about his later transformation into a Hitler-loving Nazi. Beekman seems to deny grift interpretations of his Nazi organizing and cult leading for whatever reason. We'll see what we think of that. In 1918, though, with the war raging... Pelly was approached with a unique and financially lucrative proposal that would transform his life dramatically and drag him out of his beloved New England for the very first time. This segment of the Pelly saga is one of the parts I'm most excited to explore as it reveals 
some uncanny parallels between Pelly and other figures we've been examining in this series, like Blavatsky and Alcott. It also brings the Russian Revolution and Civil War into the frame. I believe that this period in Pelly's life holds the key to his later transmutation into asset or agent for Nazi Germany, whether witting or unwitting. And, as we'll see, there are a few incredibly sus anecdotes along the way. So, as mentioned, Pelly was approached in 1918 by this Methodist Episcopal bishop who personally recruited Pelly to act as a representative of the Methodist Centenary Movement. Pelly was paid handsomely, all expenses plus a $5,000 flat fee to travel to Japan, India, and Korea, where he'd scout locations for future missions. Having succeeded in his quest to help his paper turn a profit, Pelly felt like its future was secure enough to leave it in the care of two temporary overseers. Pelly also supposedly acted as an Associated Press correspondent on the trip, although I want to point out something that I find a little curious. I went digging in newspapers.com, and the only article that I could locate that mentioned his work in this capacity was a local Vermont paper, the Brattleboro Reformer, which included this paragraph-long dispatch covering a letter from Pelly, which reads as follows. Quote, now a war correspondent, William Dudley Pelly with the Allies on the Eastern Front, St. Johnsbury, October 26th. A letter has been received from William Dudley Pelly, written in Japan on August 26th, stating that he has been appointed staff correspondent of the American Red Cross Commission to travel with the Czechs and Allied forces into Siberia, where the troops would engage the Germans on the Eastern Front. He will also keep the outside world informed of the work of the YMCA in this campaign, working in conjunction with the Associated Press representatives at Vladivostok and Tokyo. As war correspondent, he is now in the thick of things, probably, 
covering the campaign of the Allies against the Bolsheviki and German forces. On conclusion of the campaign, he writes that he expects to return to Japan and resume his trip around the world. At the time of writing, it was expected that Mrs. Pelly would soon return to Tokyo and possibly come back to the United States. End quote. First of all, I can't get over the quote as war correspondent. He is now in the thick of things, probably. <laughs> covering the campaign of the Allies against the Bolsheviki and German forces. Secondly, this is new. I don't recall Beekman making any mention of this, although perhaps he did and I just don't remember, but evidently Pelly was the, quote, correspondent of the American Red Cross Commission, end quote which should raise some eyebrows when we remember Grayson Murphy's prominent role in the organization. Remember, he was the commissioner of the American Red Cross in Europe during World War I, which could mean that Pelly and Murphy even knew each other directly or had, at the very least, communicated. If they had, it would make their respective treasonous involvement in efforts to establish fascist dictatorships in the United States all the more curious. Lastly, perhaps byline etiquette was different back in the day, and that's what this is attributable to, but I find it really interesting how I can't find any articles written by Pelly that covered the war during 1918, which begs the question whether the quote-unquote correspondent bit was more cover to obscure his work with the centenary, which in turn was cover for the espionage work he was doing. A Russian nesting doll of covers, perhaps? Beekman writes that Pelly struggled to get a couple racist and dreary articles that he'd written about his travels in Japan published in a West Coast paper or magazine once he'd returned, indicating that he was at least writing during this period but I still haven't seen any bylines backing up his purported function as war correspondent, so I still wonder. Anyways, I'm getting ahead of myself. So, as we'll see, while in Japan, Pelly met an American surgeon who spewed the quote-unquote Jewish question, watering the ugly anti-Semitic sprouts in Pelly until they bloomed into the noxious weed that would consume much of his life. 
based on Beekman's account, I suspect that this American was an army surgeon who had been stationed with the Polish army for a time, but I don't have confirmation of this. Another thing I find so fascinating is the intersection of Pelly's purported missionary role and the fact he also worked as a spy on this trip. A not uncommon pattern, missionaries either gathering intelligence while abroad or engaged in other forms of espionage. Pelly was ultimately prevented from getting into Korea as the Japanese cut off passage to scramble vessels and reroute them to transport Allied troops to Russia, but he was approached by George S. Phelps, International Secretary of YMCA Far East, with the offer to see the front. Pelly first arrived in Vladivostok, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that correctly, where he wrote reports for the YMCA on how to turn youths from, quote, satanic Leninism, end quote. He would make it as far as Irkutsk, witnessing the ceremonies where Admiral Kolchak was given formal control of the white Russian forces. Was there a single occultist from this era that wasn't also a spy? He openly admitted to it. We'll read those words in a moment. Let's actually go through a few passages directly from the William Dudley Pelly bio here. I think his self-professed involvement in international intrigue and espionage warrants it. I generally try to avoid lengthy excerpts, but we're going to make an exception here. I might occasionally paraphrase, and we'll also skip around a little bit. All right, big quote. In late summer 1918, Bishop Fred B. Fisher of the Methodist Episcopal Church visited Pelly in the offices of the Caledonian, acting as a representative of the Methodist centenary movement, Fisher offered to fund a trip around the world for Pelly and his wife. Dr. S. Earl Taylor of the centenary needed a writer to travel abroad both to survey conditions in existing foreign missions and to investigate possible sites for future Methodist missions. He wanted the person hired to travel to Japan, Korea, and India, as we've said, and return to the United States by way of Palestine and Egypt. Taylor decided upon Pelly after reading several of his stories in the American magazine. In August 1918, the Pellies left Vermont and traveled by rail to Los Angeles. They then departed from San Francisco and, after 18 days at sea, 
aboard the Tenyumaru reached Japan, Pelly developed a strangely ambiguous opinion of the country during his time there, which he never fully discarded. His 1918 stay left him with a primarily negative view of Japan, interjecting, Big fucking surprise, dude was racist AF. Continuing, But he found some aspects of the culture commendable. Particularly later, after Japan became allied with Hitler's government, We're going to skip the next few paragraphs because they mostly outline Pelly's racist opinions of Japanese culture, including some really offensive stuff that he would write, um, and also his uh, prescription, uh, in Pelly's opinion, what the Japanese most needed was a, quote, Herbert Hoover, which is laughable, um, but he also uh, believed that they needed to become more warlike and bellicose, and that military strength would help them ascend their quote-unquote poverty, which, like, once again, big surprise that this future Nazi saw things in that way. He was also a big fan of their imperial excursions into Korea, Uh, so some of these paragraphs describe that, including some of his language, which is once again very distasteful. Picking back up, Pelly's itinerary called for him to depart for Korea and northern China after finishing his work in Japan. However, the decision to move American and Japanese troops into Siberia in the wake of the chaos created by the November Bolshevik Revolution prevented his undertaking that segment of his trip. The Japanese authorities requisitioned all passenger ships plying the northern Pacific Ocean in order to facilitate the transportation of infantry to Russia, leaving Pelly without a means to continue his journey. Stranded in Japan, Pelly undertook a cross-country tour, traveling to as many missions as possible to obtain material for his articles. While in Uh, Karuizawa, he was approached by George S. Phelps, International YMCA Secretary for the Far East. Already talked about this. Phelps offers Pelly the chance to see the war. Um, The organization would help underwrite his journey and arrange for transportation in return for Pelly's writing reports on YMCA activities in the region and scouting out possible locations for canteens the organization hoped to establish for American servicemen stationed in Russia. 
Pelly sailed for Russia aboard the Penza from the Japanese port city of Suruga. He later claimed that it was while spending a few days in Suruga waiting for the ship that he was first exposed to the, quote, worldwide Jewish question, end quote. According to Pelly, it was an unnamed American surgeon heading for Siberia, previously attached to Polish forces, who explained the causes of the war to the young New England newspaper man. The surgeon told Pelly that Jews had orchestrated the assassination of Austrian Archduke Franz Ferdinand in order to bring about a bloody and profitable war. Jewish plans during the war involved overthrowing the Russian Tsar and creating a Jewish homeland in Russia. From this Russian base of operations, supposedly, again, this is Klani interjecting, you're aware that this is just a text from Beekman's book that I'm reading, um, supposedly from this Russian base of operations, Jews would launch their plan for world domination. Pelly's confidant uh, informed him that the Russian Revolution was part of this program and entirely funded by the Jewish-American banker Jacob Schiff, and that V.L. Lenin was also a Jew. Pelly debarked in Vladivostok, which reminded him of the docks of Hoboken, New Jersey, to receive specific instructions from the staff at the headquarters of the YMCA's Red Triangle in that Siberian city. He later claimed he was immediately besieged with anti-Semitic pronouncements in Vladivostok. Pelly noted that these sentiments prevailed among the American and Czech troops in Russia, as well as with his traveling companion from Japan, George Gleason. Pelly's commission with the Red Triangle involved traveling throughout Siberia in a canteen car attached to Allied troop trains. He was instructed to take pictures of conditions in the region and to write reports for the YMCA on the most efficient means of turning the youth of Russia away from, here's that quote again, satanic Leninism. And Klani interjecting again, here's uh, the quote that I referenced earlier, um, where we actually hear, in Pelly's own words, a description of what he was involved in. So, getting back to it, Pelly claimed he was a combination, quote, Red Triangle Secretary, War Correspondent, Espionage Agent, 
secret photographer, canteen proprietor, and consular courier, striving to plant sanity, decency, and political stability in a land being slowly mutilated and mangled by communism, blah, 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 blah. Pelly's excursion kept him primarily behind the Allied lines, but the frequently shifting position of the front often left him dangerously close to combat. His first and most significant experience in a combat zone occurred in the city, Blagovishensk. Pelly's car was attached to a Japanese troop train sent in as reinforcement during the fight for the city. Arriving after most of the fighting ended, Pelly witnessed the entire city go up in flames. Uh, skipping forward a little bit, in November 1918, the most picaresque episode of Pelly's Siberian adventure began while he was staying in Irkutska to watch the ceremonies that gave Admiral Alexander Kolchak formal control of all the white Russian forces. At the American consulate, he was persuaded to accompany two representatives of the International Harvester Company, three-quarters of a million dollars in company funds, and Washington-bound diplomatic documents from American Ambassador David R. Francis to Harbin in Manchuria, Harvester officials sought to rush the money out of the country before it fell into Bolshevik hands. Pelly's credentials, local authorities believed, would prevent the funds from seizure along the road to Harbin. Pelly chaperoned a money-loaded canteen for 26 days. Already fearful of being robbed, Pelly found the journey even more harrowing because of the vicious weather of the Siberian winter. When the cold and hungry trio reached Harbin, they learned the war had ended during their treacherous trip. Skipping ahead a little bit um, to one last paragraph that uh, really exhibits Pelly's growing anti-Semitism. So, Pelly blamed only the Jewish communists for the tragic destruction of the peasantry. He argued that the boxcar loads of refugees he traveled with were victims of a revolution perpetrated by, quote, 276 Jews from New York's East Side, end quote. Pelly later claimed that witnessing the actions of the, I'm not going to say that, um, 
in Siberia led him to understand the Jewish plot to take over the world. The Russian Revolution being merely the first step in this program, he used his experiences in Siberia as firsthand quote-unquote evidence of the fate awaiting Americans if the communists took over this country. Pelly believed that Russian atrocities could, quote, happen in Kansas, Indiana, New Jersey, if this communist peril becomes guerrilla warfare, end quote. With the war over, Pelly traveled back to Vladivostok by train and booked passage on the Penza, 20 pounds lighter and prematurely gray, Pelly returned to Suruga and Marion, his wife, who had remained in Japan to teach English at a Methodist missionary school in Tokyo during her husband's Siberian adventure. Owing to wartime conditions, neither Pelly had obtained any mail from the United States while in Japan. Now, with the war over, they received a flood of letters from home. Among the old letters given to them was one detailing the death of Marion's brother Ernest from influenza. Although Ernest had died almost two months prior to their belated notification, the Pellies decided to cut their trip short and return home to help care for their family, particularly Marion's aged mother. And a big end quote. I think that's where we'll leave the excerpts from uh, Beekman's William Dudley Pelly biography. So, to sum, Pelly worked as a Bolshevik-opposed, counter-revolutionary American agent in Siberia, at one point spending nearly a month convoying international harvester workers and nearly a million USD out of Russia and into Manchuria. He was writing reports on effective anti-Bolshevik propaganda for various Western Christian organizations, tying in with the long and sordid history of missionaries seconding as intelligence agents, and he witnessed combat on at least a couple occasions during the Russian Civil War and was present during the ceremony giving Admiral Kolchak command. I find it instructive that W.D. Pelly's mutation into a rabid anti-Semite and literal Nazi came about after he aided white Russians during the Russian Civil War, was involved in everything I just outlined, and had the incredibly sus conversation with an army surgeon. So, to put these experiences of Pelly's in full context, it's important to note the concerted military effort 
on the part of numerous Western capitalist countries to invade Russia in 1918. The Allies worked to prop up the White Russian campaign during the Civil War in an attempt to undo everything the Bolsheviks had accomplished. For example, Churchill supported General Kornilov's uh, September 1917 march on Petrograd with British tanks. He would later denounce the revolution as not the overthrow of Tsarist autocracy, as it actually was, but instead of democracy, quote-unquote, a disingenuous revision of what actually took place. To put the efforts that Pelly was a part of in clearer context, let's quickly listen to a snippet of a Michael Parenti lecture, where he quickly lays out the anti-Bolshevik stance of the Western powers at that moment. In fact, by the way, in late late 19th century, probably some of the most powerful socialist movements, most active movements in the world were going on in the U.S. Certainly some of the, the, most, the, the most militant worker struggles were going on. Enough so to uh, catch Marx's attention. Marx wrote to Engels, he said, what's, what's with the American workers? It's rather, rather unusual, rather massive strikes. Well, then came a most remarkable and most significant historical event, which changed the course of world history. And that was the Russian Revolution of 1917. The specter that had haunted Europe, the specter of communism, was now being realized, was being embodied. Here was not just a workers' rebellion, there had been many workers' rebellions and many workers' revolutions. Here was one that succeeded and took over a rather large country. And there's a remarkable correspondence that took place between Secretary of State Lansing and President Woodrow Wilson, in which Lansing wrote that the Bolsheviks are wanting in political virtue. They would preach to the common man that one could reach uh, an elevated height by dint of political means rather than by hard work. This would be a most unfortunate, I'm paraphrasing from memory, this would be a most unfortunate example to the common man in our country and other countries. They were very much aware that this revolution that had taken place had torn the fabric of bourgeois history. There was now another, a different kind of social force actually taking over and commanding state power. So from the very beginning, they saw a threat. It wasn't Stalin's divisions. It wasn't Khrushchev's missiles. Long before that, when it was a country which itself was then invaded by 14 Western capitalist countries, including the United States, to overthrow this newly instituted Soviet government, from the very beginning, the Western leaders understood that this was a threat. Not a threat to democracy, because half of them didn't have any democracies themselves, and they, they 
felt perfectly at home instituting brutal colonial rules throughout Africa, Asia, and Latin America with no concern for democracy. Not a threat to uh, the world's stability in the sense that this was going to cause further wars because the worst and most vicious wars were being fought among the capitalists themselves for markets and colonies and such. They were the destabilized. It was a threat to capitalism. It was a threat to that process of capital accumulation, which is the substance and mainstay of this society and every other capitalist society. It was presenting an alternative social order, one which used the land, the labor, the technology, and the capital of that society, not for the private capital accumulation process, but for social needs in a planned manner, with which, with all its imperfections and problems, was decidedly and still is a different kind of way of organizing your political economy, a different kind of society, and the end of a capitalist class society. The propaganda war against the Red Menace then intensified soon after the Russian Revolution. I want to quote historian Robert Murray in his book, Red Scare. Anti-Bolshevik testimony was played up in the columns of the nation's newspapers, and once again the reading public was fed on highly colored tales of free love, nationalization of women. By the way, that was a common story in the media in those days, that Lenin nationalized women. The women were put on nationalization. They became a part of public ownership, and you can... I don't know exactly how that worked, but... Uh, uh, nationalization of women, bloody massacres, and brutal atrocities. Stories were circulated that the victims of the Bolshevik madmen customarily had been roasted to death in furnaces, scalded with live steam, torn to pieces on racks, or hacked to bits with axes. Newspaper editors never tired of referring to the Russian Reds as assassins and madmen, quote, quote, human scum, crime mad, and beasts. This is, this is Murray. Upon his return from Japan and Siberia, Pelly was now convinced that the Russian Revolution was a plot hatched by German and American Jews to establish economic and world domination, and that the Kaiser and Bolsheviks had been their pawns in essence. Just crazy, racist, and illogical beliefs that were likely influenced by the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, among others, the irrationality of his anti-Semitism is further illustrated by his about-face into full-on Nazi asset in the 30s. Still, throughout the 20s, he appears to have kept his anti-Semitism in check and under wraps, this was likely in part because of his transition into Hollywood, a career shift that came about in the 1920s as his literary aesthetics became increasingly out of favor in comparison to the prevailing forms. Pelly likely uh, bit his lip in part because Jewish-owned Hollywood studios were buttering his bread. But prior to his career switch, 
1920, Pelly, quote, escaped the confines of his home, end quote, for San Francisco. His first marriage was deteriorating at this point, and in San Francisco, Pelly hoped to sell some of the articles he'd written during his travels. He likely made some of the Hollywood contacts that would soon enable his entry into the industry during his time in California. Similarly significant to the saga was his affair with a woman who he'd been corresponding with for a time. She was employed by a San Francisco newspaper and, according to Beekman, quote, flew planes and studied spiritualism, end quote, in her spare time. Although it's not of major importance, I mention this anecdote because she may have exposed Pelly to spiritualism and sown his later claims of clairvoyance. Remember, for the first few decades of Pelly's life, he'd really been your cookie-cutter, moralizing Protestant youth. Hollywood appears to have had a corrupting influence on him, though, as later in the 20s and 30s, he would write in his own journals about his various escapades of the heart and of the flesh. In 1922, Pelly would publish a rejoinder to Sinclair Lewis's Main Street, which he reviled for, quote, undermining the sanctity of the American small town, end quote. This novel, titled The Fog, was one of Pelly's works that would enjoy an extended shelf life because of a film adaptation. The plot doesn't deserve rehashing here, save to say that there's a fair bit of autobiography in it. The main character is a repressed young man that's angling to become a writer, if I remember correctly. It is once again set in Paris, Vermont, Pelly's Lake Wobegon. A fair bit of it appears to be veiled venting about his own marriage. The protagonist ends up in an unhappy marriage of convenience to a woman of his class, while in reality, he's in love with the daughter of one of the wealthiest families in town. We don't need to discuss the rest of the plot's convulsions, save that he and the neo-aristocratic girl are ultimately brought together after he, quote, trudges through Siberia for truly unclear reasons during the Bolshevik Revolution, end quote and his first wife dies in an attack on a New Jersey munitions plant. Sounds like some wishful thinking from Pelly, which is dark. The protagonist is caught in a train wreck, captured by Bolsheviks, and then manages to escape in a blinding blizzard. At the end, he, quote, 
awakens in a field hospital and is cared for by a Red Cross nurse. End quote. I told you, Pelly had a Red Cross nurse fetish. Uh, and the nurse turns out to be the girl from Paris, Vermont, that he'd always been down bad for. It's a trademark piece of anti-Bolshevik Pelly Dross, but it was financially successful, evidently running through 17 printings. This would lead to Pelly's next project, a short story called White Faith, getting purchased by film producer Larry Griffin for 7500 bucks. This project, financed by a wealthy New Yorker named Jules Brulatour, who was trying to manifest his wife's dream of becoming a movie star through sheer purchasing power, um, would enable Pelly to participate in a production for the very first time. I guess he'd already had three different short stories purchased for film productions in the late teens, so make note of that in case I previously made it sound like he only broke into the movie biz in the 20s. The big distinction between those earlier films and White Faith was that Pelly was contracted to rewrite the story into a workable script, giving him the opening into the increasingly lucrative world of screenwriting that he craved. By my count, at least two films, based on Pelly stories, featured the Revolution, Russian Civil War, and or gems smuggled out of Siberia. One of these was the 1924 film Torment. Once again, a Pelly script. It was directed by Maurice Tourneau, hearkening back to previous EPs mapping that Crowley, Rodin, Huismont, etc., decadent and satanic nexus in Fond de Siècle France, as Maurice was formerly Auguste Rodin's assistant, connecting him to Crowley et al. directly. Speaking of, another Fond de Siècle symbolist figure Pelly was tangentially connected to, this time via American Society for Psychical Research, Maurice Materling, source of MK Ultra predecessor Project Bluebird's name. We'll get into it when we cover Pelly's NDE. As for Torment, independently financed, Beekman contends that it is the most quote unquote prestigious of any of the Pelly affiliated films. Maurice, the director, Rodin's former assistant, would go on to be considered one of the great stylists of early Hollywood. Torment is the production with the elaborate plot involving a Russian Count Boris who escapes the 
Bolshevik Revolution with the Tsar Nicholas's jewels, in an utterly unbelievable turn, Pelly portrays the fictional count as planning to use the jewels to, quote, aid his uh, starving countrymen, end quote. They say, write what you know. Well, Pelly certainly did, as the Count travels to Yokohama, Japan. There, a trio of international jewel thieves plan to rob him blind and run off with the royal loot. One of the thieves meets a beautiful Hollywood damsel and falls in love with her, her love cracking the ice of his cold heart and causing him to quote-unquote go straight in typical Hollywood uh, 1920s fashion. The Count, the thieves, and the love interest end up caught in an earthquake. The Count is murdered in the ensuing chaos, presumably by the two remaining thieves. In the end, the honest thief and the romantic partner end up with the jewels, which they then use to help starving Russians. A totally unrealistic and hollow uh, sentimental reimagining of the way wartime smuggling generally plays out and naked anti-Bolshevik propaganda to boot. Throughout the mid-twenties, Pelly worked with studios like Fox, MGM, and Universal, and was probably enjoying his most lucrative period as a working writer. Can't help but include this quote where he refers to the industry as the, quote, necromancy of movie making, end quote. Some real Hollywood Babylon shit. One of his most frequent collaborators was Lon Chaney, a fast-rising star on the scene. Pelly would also begin working Arthurian and Grail imagery into his films around this time, betraying his growing interest in occultism and rhyming with the Nazi Grail obsession, which we'll get to later on. His time in modern Babylon and irritation at toiling under Jewish studio moguls, often unheralded or um, having his work in his mind unceremoniously altered by non-writers, further heightened his anti-Semitism and misguided belief in an unjust, quote-unquote, Jewish Hollywood. To use a phrase that he undoubtedly read in Henry Ford's The International Jew. Pelly's malignant and morphing anti-Semitism is made all the more ironic by the fact that it was the very studio system that was behind this most lucrative time for Pelly. 
also related to the theme of the undercurrent of anti-Semitism rippling through the United States at the time. Pelly was also connected via Larry Griffin to a project in Washington, D.C. that failed to get off the ground. It was supposed to be a film about the criminal justice system, but failed to materialize. I mention it, though, because Pelly would later claim that, on a trip to D.C., presumably to consult on the project, he met with numerous newspapermen and Justice Department officials, who he never named, who he insisted were all aghast at the Teapot Dome scandal, which they averred was a smokescreen to shield public scrutiny of a shadowy Jewish plot to create an unofficial government and control the economy. Regardless of whether we take Pelly's stories seriously or not, his recurrent claims of anti-Semitism among military and government officials is certainly interesting and something that should give us pause. In the mid-twenties, Pelly diversified his portfolio, establishing the Pelly and Eccles Advertising Agency, which, oh shit, further potential evidence of a connection between Pelly and Murphy of the business plot. P&E's ad agency was located in the Guarantee Building in Hollywood. Huh. One of their first clients as an agency was their mutual friend, I'm not sure how to pronounce this, Dolge or Dolgi, probably Dolge, um, who managed a coterie of up-and-coming stars. To promote his actors, they began printing a Hollywood circular called Hi-Hat Magazine, which they hoped would be the, quote, round table of the film community, end quote. Another project they sunk their teeth into was this harebrained scheme to, quote, cash in on the post-Lindbergh solo flight craze, end quote. Another Nazi that we'll be covering in these Pelly EPs. The agency attempted to organize and promote the first solo flight from Hawaii to the continent, drafting a successful stunt pilot and, quote, protege of wing-walking pioneer Owen Locklear, end quote, as the daredevil to make the attempt. The scheme ended up failing miserably when the plane's tail fin literally fell off shortly after takeoff, 
and the pilot was forced into an emergency landing. Despite the scheme crash landing face first, the pilot would enjoy a successful career, serving as stunt coordinator on the aviation classic Wings. A few years later, Dolch, the manager, stood by him too. He would later compete in air races sponsored by the Dole Fruit Company, which brings us dangerously close to the banana discourse of recent days. We'll leave Dole alone for now, but might return to it sometime in the future with a planned Massachusetts United Fruit Company episode. The meat of the agency's profits was made in real estate, though. According to Beekman, they, quote, snapped up a large tract of real estate on Sunset Mountain and converted it into the Phil Manor subdivision, with the proceeds from the disposal of their properties. Pelly and Eccles bought a chain of ice cream parlors, end quote. The real estate and ad agency shit appears to have provided Pelly with the income necessary to subsidize the purchase of a bungalow on Altadena's Mount Circle Drive which he actually purchased under the name of his lover, Helen Wilhelmina Hansmann. Because of spousal housing laws in California at that time, um, that meant that spouses were entitled to half equity in any real estate. As Pelly had not yet divorced his first wife, he gave the money to his lover to purchase the place on his behalf. This bungalow brings us to the end of this first installment, as it is here that Pelly would enter quote-unquote eternity for a quick seven minutes, lol. As previously hinted at, Pelly's avalanching anti-Semitism had doubtlessly been intensified by various publications and tracts. Henry Ford's The International Jew, which ran in his personal organ The Dearborn Independent, which would later print The Protocols of the Elders of Zion in its entirety too. Another probable and debilitating influence for Pelly was probably Theodore Lothrop Stoddard's Revolt Against Civilization and The Rising Tide of Color. There's a good chance they were some of his other racist touchpoints. Others might have included Chamberlain uh, de Gobineau, and Werner Sombart, and then it's highly likely that 
Blavatsky, Alcott, C.W. Ledbetter, etc., and Theosophical Doctrine were also influences. Whether he'd already been exposed to Blavatsky before his mystical experience or after, I'm unsure. Seeking some refuge from the rat race of Hollywood, Pelly had retired to his bungalow on the mountain for a brief retreat of rest, reflection, and writing. But this was no harmless writer's retreat, no. Evidently, Pelly was singularly obsessed with the question of, quote, what is race, end quote, at this time, according to his own account and Beekman's. Delving into the metaphysical side here for a second, I want to mention a habit of Pelly's that I think might have opened him up to some pernicious, non-human influences, entities that likely played a pivotal role in his transformation into anti-Semitic and Nazi demagogue. At a relatively young age, Pelly developed this habit of reading before bed until he would fall asleep, which was fueled in part by his academic FOMO after he'd been forced by his father to leave high school and start working at the Fulton Toilet Paper Company. Now, I'm not implying that reading before bed uh, will automatically open up some portal that demons can crawl through and attach themselves onto you. No, that's not what I'm saying. But I am saying that I think it's possible that if you incessantly consume racist and hateful garbage before bed, drowsily reading until you enter the liminal state between sleep and wakefulness, I do think that it's possible that you could basically self-hypnotize yourself, leaving yourself vulnerable to entities. Even from a purely materialist psychological perspective, there's no denying that the words um, we read can transform us, sometimes indelibly, and that the repeated exposure of the subconscious to negative influence might have some effect. On May 28, 1928, Pelly went to bed early, per his routine reading, quote, ethnological tracts until dozing, end quote. According to Beekman, Pelly woke in the morning to a, quote, inner voice shrieking, I'm dying, end quote. Per Pelly, he experienced sensations that felt like a combination 
of heart attack and apoplexy. He then plummeted, quote, down a mystic depth of cool blue space, not unlike the bottomless sinking sensation that attends the taking of either for anesthetics, end quote. Let's read a little bit from William Dudley Pelly's Seven Minutes in Eternity, his post-death and rebirth write-up of his purported NDE and the experiences he claimed to have on the other side. Quote, So this is death? I aver that in the interval between my seizure and the end of my plunge, I was sufficiently possessed of my physical senses to think. Quote, my dead body may lie in this lonely house for days before anyone discovers it, unless Laska breaks out and brings aid. End quote. Skipping ahead a little bit. Uh, next, I was whirling madly. Once in 1920 over San Francisco, an airplane in which I was passenger went into a tailspin, and we almost fell in the Golden Gate. That feeling, someone reached out, caught me, stopped me. A calm, clear, friendly voice said close to my ear, quote, Take it easy, old man. Don't be alarmed. You're all right. We're here to help you. End quote. Clonny interjecting. Ominous. Someone had hold of me, I said. Two persons, in fact. One with a hand under the back of my neck, supporting my weight. The other with an arm under my knees. I was physically flaccid from my quote-unquote tumble and unable to open my eyes as yet because of the sting of queer opal light that diffused the place unto, into which I had come. When I finally managed it, I became conscious that I had been born to a beautiful marble slab palette and laid nude upon it by two strong-bodied, kindly-faced young men in white duck uniforms, not unlike those worn by interns in hospitals, who were secretly amused at my confusion and chagrin. Feeling better? The taller of the two asked, Considerately, as physical strength to sit up unaided came to me and I took note of my surroundings? Yes, I stammered. Where am I? They exchanged good-humored glances. Don't try to see everything in the first seven minutes, was all the answer they made me then. They did not need to answer my question, 
my question was superfluous. I knew what had happened. I had left my earthly body back on a bungalow bed in the California mountains. I had gone through all the sensations of dying. And whether this was the hereafter or an intermediate station, most emphatically I had reached a place and state which had never been duplicated in all my experience. Big end quote. Pelly goes on to describe the inexpressible ecstasy of his new um, spiritual or subtle body, and uh, he tries to contend with this reality for a minute. He looks around and finds that he's in a, quote, sort of marble-tiled and furnished portico the place was, lighted by that soft, unseen opal illumination with a clear-as-crystal Roman pool diagonally across from my bench, on which I remained for a time striving to credit that all this was real. End quote. And then, from there, um, he next bathes in the Roman pool, which appears to have some magical quality to it, um, that alleviates Pelly's shyness about his astral body nudity. Now, I can't remember if I already said this, but I just want to point out that aspects of this narrative, whether contrived or not, seem to match up with the pattern of later modern uh, alien abduction stories to some degree. It's also intriguing and more than a little sus the way in which the quote-unquote spirits um, who welcome Pelly to this uh, intermediary um, liminal space are dressed and appear like army surgeons, hearkening back to the um, seminal conversation that Pelly had with the surgeon in Japan that essentially um, infected him with his future anti-Semitism. After spending some seven minutes in the uh, opal-lighted portico with the reflecting pool, Pelly gets booted back out into his physical body, and he uh, has a secondary conversion experience, a little reluctant to call it a conversion experience because of the implications of Pelly's newfound connection and ability to communicate with the spiritual world. But all the same, uh, Beekman classifies Pelly's NDE as a William James-esque conversion experience, fitting with his criteria. 
will probably cover the secondary um, numinous experience in a bit more detail in the second installment, and we might rehash and introduce a few more specifics of Pelly's Seven Minutes in Eternity uh, as well. But we've reached this root moment around which Pelly's life story seems to revolve. In the next part, we'll also speculate whether we think there's any veracity to the experiences Pelly claims to have gone through, or whether he's sniffing his own shit, so to speak. And it's all a part of an elaborate anti-Semitic grift. What's certain is that after this point, Pelly's anti-Semitism deepens, and he begins to uh, attest that he has been told that, um, similarly to Theosophy and Blavatsky's thought, there are gradations of spiritual refinement that correspond with skin tone. Really fucked up stuff. And he claims that he hears it from these wild, duck-suited, in his words, uh, surgeon-looking doctors in a portico in the sky. Well, I think this is where I need to leave you today, dear listener. As always, please share the show and subscribe on Patreon if you're able. Most importantly, do not develop the habit of reading questionable texts before sleep to the point that you begin to become drowsy and self-hypnotize yourself, leaving your skull open a crack for teeth-gnashing anti-Semitic entities to come scurrying through. As always, stay vigilant, critters. And stay critical. Thank you.